Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. We've looked at the issues of gender rights, gender discrimination, and violence against women and girls in Central Asia before on the Medjlis Podcast, but so little has changed, and in fact, in some cases, the situation seems to be growing worse. Efforts are being made to find solutions to these problems, and laws are being passed in the Central Asian countries, but are they having any effect? If not, what are the obstacles to gender equality and ending violence against women and girls? To discuss all this, I am joined by Jeanette Echogaba, Eurasia Consultant at the International Organization Equality Now that specializes in human rights, sex discriminatory laws, gender equality, and legislative change to create a just world for women and girls. Delfuza Kurolova, a human rights lawyer and activist for gender equality from Uzbekistan. Sophia Mastanshoyeva a researcher with the thematic experience on human rights, gender, and justice issues. Her research focus has been on prevention and response to violence against women and girls in Tajikistan, intersectionality, women, peace, and security. Thank you all for joining me. And Jeanette, I know that your organization just released a report. Could you speak about so, about the report and some of the findings concerning Central Asia, please? Yes, uh, Bruce. Thank you. And uh, hello, everyone. Uh, yes, first, I would say a couple of words here we are and why we are here and what we are doing here before going into uh, the report findings. Uh, Equality Now, the organization I work for, is an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls around the world. And our campaigns are centered on four program areas, uh, which are legal equality, ending sexual violence, uh, ending harmful practices, and ending sexual exploitation or sex trafficking. And so we combine grassroots activism with international, regional, national legal advocacy to achieve legal and systemic change that will benefit all women and girls and uphold their rights. Um, so our focus in Eurasia, and now we are talking about Central Asia. So our focus in this region is uh, particularly sexual violence. And you know that sexual violence, similar to all other forms of gender-based violence, is a, a manifestation of historically unequal power relations between men and women. And it's a form of uh, discrimination against women. And it is also a social mechanism that keeps women in subordinate position, being a significant barrier to equality. Well, we know that it can be committed against persons of any sex, but predominantly affects women and girls and directed against them because they are women and girls. In our work in Central Asia, we see that as anywhere else, the blame and responsibility for violence is often placed on victims by their abusers, family members, uh, health professionals, police judges, communities. So violence is often viewed as an acceptable and often legitimized form of treatment and punishment of women. And not only by perpetrators, but wider communities, women included. So our basis for uh, the work in uh, Eurasia, including Central Asia, is the 2019 report Roadblocks to Justice. The, the report um, clearly showed us that rape and sexual assault-related laws and practices in the 15 countries of the former Soviet Union 
effectively deny access to justice for survivors of sexual violence. So we have been working in uh, Eurasia since 2018, and we started our campaigns in Central Asia, in Uzbekistan and in uh, Kyrgyzstan, only a couple of years ago. So it's it's not a lot of time, but we have already done uh, much uh, thanks to our local partners. And so speaking about the report that we released just a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, in, in late January, we released the report Sexual Violence Laws in Eurasia Towards a Consent-Based Definition. And this report examines legal provisions relating to sexual violence in five countries, including three Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, and Uzbekistan. And this research identifies uh, shortfalls in ways that sexual violence crimes are defined under the law, and it highlights how existing laws are being poorly uh, enacted throughout these criminal justice systems in all these um, uh, three countries. We even cannot say that uh, the situation is better in one country or another. And basically, yeah, this report could be a, a great resource for those who work in legal protection, litigation, advocacy, because it, well, the, the main findings and the, the most important things that uh, I can tell about this report is that it says that the main problems are limited legal definitions of rape in these countries. They actually deny access to justice for women and girls. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan have criminal codes that require violence in order to prove rape, and they very narrowly interpret this violence. Uh, it never includes um, psychological violence. So basically, it's very little chance for a perpetrator to get punishment uh, because there is no available evidence of physical injury and uh, the rape definition should not be based on use of violence. And um, criminal codes in these countries, they uh, include the threat of violence. They, they do include, so they provide this uh, in, in the criminal codes, but the definition is generally limited to threats of murder or serious bodily harm. So things like blackmail, some other forms of psychological violence, they are not uh, um, being used there. And um, another thing um, that is clearly coming out of this report that sexual violence laws should be based on consent, which is not the case now. And that's why we, Equality Now, are calling for all countries, the governments of Central Asian countries, to amend their legal definitions of rape in accordance with the international human rights standards. Uh, the standards that they already committed to follow. Uh, and we see some very good moves in some of the countries. Uh, we were happy to see the national action plan in uh, Uzbekistan in response to the CEDAW recommendations last year and uh, a clear commitment of the government to implement them uh, and to implement the national action plan and the recommendations. Um, that's, that is inspiring. Cases of sexual violence should be assessed on an individual basis, taking into account the surrounding context. And um, there is a poor implementation even of the existing sexual violence laws. This is also the thing that we uh, see, so they are poorly implemented. 
And what we offer in this report, we basically state that comprehensive legal and procedural reforms are needed, uh, including introduction of consent-based definitions of rape, which is urgently needed. And uh, instead of requiring the use of threat or force because this denies women access to justice, and governments need to ensure that laws and procedures are well implemented. And while legal reforms are in the pipeline, while, I mean, because laws, you know, they don't change in one day. So the criminal justice systems should interpret existing laws less rigidly to prosecute a wider range of sexual violence acts so that all victims can uh, receive comprehensive access to protection and and justice. So this is um, shortly about our report. The report is available on our website, equalitynow.com, as well as other resources and reports that we produced during the last years, uh, specifically about the situation with sexual violence and generally violence against women and girls in Central Asia, including uh, Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. So yeah, another publication uh, related to sexual violence against women with disabilities is coming out in March, and it also will be available on our website. Thank you. Thank you, Jeanette. Um, Dilfuza, you are a lawyer. Could you speak specifically about you know some of the obstacles in Uzbekistan? If someone wants to charge you know an assailant with with rape or, or even violence uh gender violence what 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 is the process and how difficult is for it for the the victim to actually get a case like that to court thank you so much for the question hello to everyone thank you for having me today actually i'm in a group in a working group of the senate who is reviewing now legislation on gender based violence and sexual crimes against children and women and I'm there since April last year, together with other activists, for example, from Nimalchi Uz and uh, in some of the UN agencies and et cetera. And we are promoting a couple of things that uh, Jeanette was mentioning, especially when it comes to the gender-based violence and sexualized crimes against children. So coming back uh, with your question, what are the obstacles? So one of the things is um, there's still no clear definition of the domestic violence. There is no clear definition. I mean, there is no even a criminalization of these uh, crimes, right? Because now if, for example, a woman is, let's say, raped in uh, in a family by her husband or children are affected by domestic violence, they cannot go to the court because there is no such a crime in the criminal code. So what they do is you, the victims, usually they find some crimes that can handle this violation, let's say beating, injuries, rape, and etc. And then uh, they can claim that such a crime has happened uh, against this victim. But in order again to do it, uh, it's very long procedure because we have presumption of innocence, meaning that any perpetrator can use this clause. And while the crime is not confirmed by the law enforcement agencies, this person cannot be considered as a perpetrator. And of course, victims have a burden to provide evidences. They have to go to this humiliation process and they have to show all evidences. Usually when it comes to gender-based violence or oppression or domestic violence or psychological Lots of my clients, let's say, they're asking what they can do because they, for example, 
called the police. They went to the court, but they could not provide any kind of evidences. And the problem is coming with the collection of these evidences, providing these evidences and legal assistance. Because uh, as you know, uh, current legislation do not provide free legal consultations or free legal assistance or free legal aid uh, to anyone except those who are in criminal court and uh, suspect. Only in one case, government is guaranteeing free legal aid. In the rest of the cases, there is no such um, service. So that's why many victims, either they gave up on going to the court or they just uh, lose the case. And in usual cases, in the case of rape, let's say, or beating and etc., uh, it end up like with a reconciliation because uh, Article 66.1 of the Criminal Code, it says there's different types of crimes, including sexual uh, crimes that can be ended or this case can be closed only with reconciliation with the victim. And in my opinion, in the opinion of our working group, it's absolutely against human rights. It should be. Uh, deleted and our version of the draft law that we were working for many months. Uh, it also, let's say, we remove uh, sexualized crimes as the point for reconciliation. Thank you, thank you. And Sophia, I want to get to you now. Um, can you explain how the how the laws work in Tajikistan when there's a case of rape or or gender violence, um, whether it uh, domestic or otherwise? Uh, what are the laws like there? Thank you, Bruce, um, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm very pleased to be um, in this panel of um, esteemed experts. Um, and the situation is very similar to what Jeanette and, and uh, Delfuza have been describing. Um, it's very similar in Tajikistan as well. Uh, we don't have that many specific laws that are dealing with different forms of gender-based violence. We have the the uh, law on prevention of domestic violence or the family violence law, um, as they call it, and it has a supposedly a preventive approach, but uh, domestic violence is not criminalized. And then the rape is 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 a, is a form of crime uh, outlined as the crim- and in the criminal law, but other forms like, for instance, sexual harassment is not is not defined anywhere and. In, in the cases of, of sexual harassment, very few cases have been brought to justice f- f- uh, past in the past uh, two, three years. People try to, and, and lawyers and, and human rights defenders try to find other alternatives within the existing frameworks uh, to address um, uh, cases of sexual harassment. Um, and it very often they use uh, articles under administrative codes, uh, um, like, uh, for instance, articles on disrupting public order or, or other others, uh, depending on where sexual harassment occurs, which is, uh, in the absence of other alternatives, is something that could be used, but then we never are getting to the core of the problem. It's not defined and it's not, you're not, we're not really getting to the to the core problem of w- what the intention is when, uh, for instance, uh, cases of sexual harassment occur, or um, I'm not even talking about marital rape. Um, there's no such 
definitions. There's no such thing in the in the current legislation in Tajikistan, and marital rape is not even uh, reported. Uh, and uh, when we talk with as a researcher, for instance, we, I do interviews with respondents a lot, and it's not even understood by uh, those who are in marriage or in intimate partnership that there's a such such thing as marital rape. So it's very the overall the awareness and understanding of the seriousness of of crimes related to sexual violence is very low and in terms of legislation it's not that there's there's very uh, there's lack of um, naming the the crimes and there's lack of relevant legislation available to victims um and it's not women are not really protected uh, by the law and we've seen this uh, turning into really serious instances we've all have uh, i think you've heard about the the what preceded the the deadly events in Gabao there was a case of sexual harassment of a young woman and then we all see uh, also what happened and afterwards it triggered other events and, and then it turned to something really big to the point that it's a major security issue that now for the country um, so what the um, civil society actors human rights defenders uh, women rights activists are trying to 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 achieve is to criminalize first of all domestic violence and to make amendments to the current uh, criminal code in terms of defining clearly what sexual harassment is what are other forms of gender based violence and what lies beneath it what's the core uh, of this problem it's not and you, that's why you can't really use uh, other alternatives within the existing legislation to address these crimes because what lies in the core of this crime is the is exactly what um, Janet has been mentioned and, and Delfosa, um is this unequal power relations objectification of women the the issue with sexual entitlement and all of that so we're not really getting there if we're not naming it accordingly uh, within the legislation and not addressing it accordingly uh uh-huh, thank you let me let me follow up with a question for you Sophia to the best of your recollection has have they ever had rape rape cases actually made it to the court system i'm trying to you know i can remember some uh psychological abuse cases where the you know usually and tragically the the young woman dies from these kind of things but have any do you remember any cases making it to court rape cases making it to court in tajikistan um, yes, but in very rare cases, um, it's also because uh, it's not reported. Uh, there's a lot of stigma around rape, and it's not reported. So what we see that well, no, the cases that make to the court, it's very, it's really a small drop uh, in the ocean of what really happens, and uh, it's just even that the families and then the, the, the you know are not really in favor of, of these cases uh, being brought before the court. So, yes, there have been cases that uh, that uh, have been brought before the court, but very, very rarely. And it's both because the, the, the protection system, the response system is quite weak. It's not gender-sensitive. It's not victim-centered. Uh, the approach is not victim-centered. But it's also because it's the, there's a huge stigma culture around um, rape and, and sexual violence, so victims are t- tend to not even talk about it. Okay, uh, thank you. And we have reached the midway point, so I'm going to have to do my my midway promo here. 
Let me remind everybody that this is the Medjilis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Benier, host of the Medjilis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Um, we're talking about discrimination against women in Central Asia, but, but more specifically, what's being done to, to combat sexual violence uh, and help victims of sexual violence in Central Asia. And joining me to discuss this are Delfuza Kurolova, a human rights lawyer and activist for gender equality from Uzbekistan, Sophia Mastanshoyeva, a researcher with thematic experience on human rights, gender, and justice issues. Her research focus has been on prevention and response to violence against women and girls in Tajikistan, intersectionality, women, peace, and security, and Jeanette Akhigova, Eurasia consultant at the International Organization Equality Now, that specializes in human rights, sex discriminatory laws, gender equality and legislative change to create a just world for women and girls. Thank you all again for being on and and a reminder that of course you can comment on anything you've heard or bring up other points. But you know, I'm really curious about, you know, that they're trying to every time these these issues come up, the government always has an answer for this. That they they formed a commission, they have something going on. Uh, you know, uh and and actually there's women in prominent roles in politics, right? Uh you know, the the speaker of the Uzbek Senate is a woman uh, the daughter, one of the daughters of the Uzbek president was on the women's committee for a while, but all, all these countries have these women's committees too. And, and say that they're, they're doing something to promote these kind of things. Is it making any difference? Cause it doesn't really seem like it is. And I'll start with you, Dilfusa. Thank you for the question. Uh, actually it's very interesting because, um, on one hand, I really support changes that happening in Uzbekistan, especially for the last five years or maybe even more when women actually play a big role, when women holding uh, highest positions, let's say Narbaeva is a chief of the Senate of Uzbekistan. And as you mentioned, uh, there are so many women or female figures uh, holding their high level positions. But on the other hand, we also see that there is a, so much resistance on combating gender-based violence. We have a woman committee. We have a lots of... Um, uh, organizations working on gender-based violence. There are state programs supporting shelters. There's a, even a presidential decree supporting women entrepreneurship or uh, providing free uh, sk- uh, classes for uh, skills development and uh, employment, uh, tackling employment issues. But on the other hand, we see that a radicalization or let's say religious context and and mentality discussions it just becoming another reason why gbv combating is not furthering uh, we hear a lot of discussions when women's or gender role is pointing out and saying like women never been i mean i think women always meant to be at home I mean, one of the discourse is going on and uh, feminism is accepted as if women are against men and they want to kill everyone, you know, (laughs) and uh, putting the matriarchy in our country. I think this kind of breaking the paradigms is just making impossible to fight for GBV. Uh, Even being in a working group, and discussing with many state organizations during the drafting of this law on sexualized 
violence and crimes against women and children, we hear that some of the government organizations or even some of the senators, they say few recommendations cannot be accepted because of the mentality, because of the tradition, or they say because of the legal technique that we have. Of course, many lawyers will agree with me that uh, mentality and traditions cannot be a reason, I mean, cannot be a legal reason to deny some recommendations. But on the other hand, we also understand, being a member of the working group, that this mental pattern is playing a biggest role when decision has to be made by the decision makers. And uh, for now, I, I don't see what else can be done uh, because uh, activists are working a lot. They are writing a lot. Journalists are covering these questions. For example, if you open uh, nimalchi.us, you will find so many cases. Even today, there was a case when 39 years old woman was raped by their neighbors in front of the children. And uh, she was beaten and, and raped severely. Uh, this is not normal. This is not a tradition. This not, never ha- happened. And I think the, the reason of that is because there is no such a crime and litigation going on. There is a very big difficulty to protecting victims. There is a difficulty for victims to protect themselves and seek for legal remedies in the judiciary, in the justice system. There is a lack of trust to law enforcement agencies. And all of them is making the fight very challenging uh, in the country. But on other, again, I I have to say that um, in comparison with the six or seven years, of course, this is a huge, tremendous changes happening in Uzbekistan. We could never even thought that activists like me will be sitting in front of the government organizations and senators in the Senate building and discussing the law. Uh, That would never, ever happen. Thank you. And so here's how much, of this, how much of this sounds familiar to you? And, you know, and again, uh, Azada Rahman is the head of the presidential administration, the president's daughter. Has it made any difference? Yes, there is. I think the, the, during the past years, there's been more attention to bringing more women in, in decision-making positions, uh, which is a positive step. Um, very often, for instance, when there are cases of, of severe cases of, of violence or violence against women or violence against minor girls. Uh, Ozo Rahman is the first person that civil society activists would turn to. Um, and there are other women in the in the government as well who are are useful channels to channel these messages. But the main uh, organization, the main governmental body that deals with issues of, of gender-based violence is the, the Committee on Women and Family Affairs, um, and that the same committee is coordinating the implementation of the, of the uh, violence uh, of the family violence law, as well as as others. So, in terms of the then the hierarchy of the governmental institutional hierarchy of where this committee stands is it's it's quite low. It's not it's not uh, at the level of the ministries, um, and very often within that system of coordination and response to uh, violence. 
And there are other ministries more powerful, like the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, that have direct uh, impact on how cases are dealt with, how the cases are, how statistics is being collected, how desegregated is the statistic by types of crime and, and, and etc. Um, so it's been difficult for the committee to request, for instance, powerful more powerful uh, institutional bodies like the Ministry of Interior to give them the statistics or to, or if there are cases of, uh, for instance, when police is not responding to, to domestic violence or uh, resorting to reconciliation in, 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 in severe cases as well. The committee is, 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 it's hard for the committee then to keep up with their work and coordinate the work and advocate and um, do other things. So one of the, one of the, um, advocacy uh, issues uh, that the civil society is trying to bring is to increase the status of the committee to the uh, up to the level of the ministry so that it has that institutional power to start demanding these issues and to start demanding accountability also from the law enforcement from the justice sector to ensure that cases are um, dealt with in accordance with international standards but on the other hand, we see, you know, we see women are in decision-making positions. More women are being put in decision-making positions. But on the other hand, we see a very mixed messages coming. For instance, that practice of of bringing girls to to um, you know young girls to, for instance, to to welcome guests uh, whenever government officials go somewhere. There are girls who are welcoming them. And, and these this types of practices then send, again, very wrong messages, again, on, on this um, issue of object, objectification of women. And, and so I think it's very important for the government and the society back home to try to reconcile the messages uh, um, around, you know, what, what, we, what, we see, what we name as, as violence against women and girls and how our practices around uh, and attitudes on that. So if we are, if we have the laws, if we are trying to promote women to decision-making positions, if we are doing other things that we need to also try to prevent um, issues like objectification of women or, you know, there are other many other examples where you see these attitudes coming through, these harmful practices, where it's um, it's very mixed messages. Or, oh, for instance, eighth of March has is not the Women's Day anymore; it's Mother's Day. So there's a lot of problematics with that as well. So I think it's it's not just about um, promoting women to decision makers' uh, position, but it, it's also for the government, the society as a whole, to try to think in a different way about women and about norms governing the behavior of men and women and what we ascribe, the roles that we ascribe to women and men. Thank you very much. Uh, Jeanette, your organization has probably been in touch with some of these committees or officials in, in some of these Central Asian countries. Can, can you talk a little bit about what the interaction is with these, these people? Yes, uh, and I would really like to celebrate what Dilfuso was talking about, the, the work of the working group in the Senate on the draft law on further improving the system of reliable protection of the rights, freedoms, and legitimate interests of women and children. I hope I, I properly named the law. I, I, I would like to celebrate this because um, after the last... Uh, changes and comments that uh, were taken to this draft law, if all of them are accepted, the legislation of Uzbekistan that is related to protection of women and 
children from violence will be the most progressive in uh, Central Asia. So, yeah, and the working group managed to fight for these changes at the last meeting. And we, Equality Now, also offered our comments uh, to the changes in the laws. So just really great changes are offered. Uh, something like Dilfuza already mentioned that reconciliation will be banned for crimes, for sexual crimes, which is one of the most salient issues uh, related to sexual violence against women and children in Uzbekistan, related to the laws and, uh, and, and practices and procedures. Uh, domestic violence, online grooming, harassment, stalking will be criminalized. Uh, I think it's a great thing. And the terms of punishment for sexual crimes will be increased and uh, crimes against persons with disabilities will be singled out as aggravating uh, circumstances. So a lot of positive changes if they are accepted. Mm. Well, in terms of uh, our interaction, I I think I mentioned that earlier that it's it's inspiring to see that uh, the governments we work with in Central Asia, unfortunately, we do not yet yet work in Tajikistan, but Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, they really show their commitment to to go for these changes. You also asked, like, why doesn't it happen uh, so quickly? Well, um, because nobody nobody gives away power easily. We have never seen that in history. And um, because the root cause of this violence against women, uh, the root cause of gender-based violence is the uh, unequal power relations, which is basically patriarchy. And no matter how uh, far we go with laws, I mentioned earlier that even the existing laws in these countries are not used properly to protect women and girls from violence. They are used in a way so that to harm women sometimes and to deny them access to justice, even those that exist. And that is about lack of political will in the institutions across the country, because, you know, these are the same people as we are. They have been socializing in the patriarchal societies. And to uphold, to perpetuate this patriarchal uh, power symmetry, you know, a lot of things are used. Uh, Dilfuza, you mentioned uh, religious fundamentalisms, uh, uh, yes, uh, denying women's rights is one of the main features of the modern religious fundamentalisms. And this this thing is also used to perpetuate patriarchy and gender-based violence and other things like traditionalist agenda, neo-traditionalist agenda. So there are too many things that are resisting this change. But the governments, they have obligations, they have ratified various international human rights tools, uh, instruments, and they have to make some commitments, so they have to. And sometimes there is political will in the in the governments. You see, you see I, I know that Ms. Kadirhanova, uh, he is the head of the Senate Gender Commission in Uzbekistan, has been supporting all these changes. And so we have people like these in the governments who really want these changes and... Um, and this process of the change, of course, is not linear. Yes, things are improving, but certainly there are backlashes and other processes that try to uh, to hinder the development and laws that will protect women and children and ensure equality of men and women.
Thank you. Thank you. And unfortunately, we're, we're running kind of short on time. But but I'll be, I'm hoping that I can bring you all back on the show again in, uh, in the very near future. But um, so I'm going to give you all a chance to make some last comments if you want. But I'm also you know to try to positive note into this as possible. If you could speak about some of the things that that victims of sexual crimes can do in their society, understanding this is a patriarchal society, uh, there's social pressure uh, on these people, but. You know, if they find themselves a victim of this, who to whom can they turn? What are their options? Uh, but like I said, basically, it's free. You can make any any comment you want that you think we have some issue we haven't addressed. And I'll start with you, Jeanette. Oh, what victims can do. First of all, I would really, really like women and, and to, to hear that you're not alone. You are not alone. You definitely have somebody, some groups, uh, NGOs, activists, lawyers. You have people who will support you. I know that the biggest uh, obstacle sometimes and in most probably times for women in Central Asia is uh, the so-called Uyat. It's, it's the shame. And, and actually, our publication was called The Culture of Shame, the publication about Uzbekistan and sexual violence cases in Uzbekistan. So, yeah, the only thing I would tell them, you're not alone. Please go. You will find services. You will find phone uh, uh, numbers. You will find activists. He will help you. Or if they cannot help you, they will refer you to other people who can help you. Okay, thank you. Sophia? Yes, I think uh, maybe just to end on a positive note is is when I compare the situation, uh, at least the awareness uh, awareness level on violence perpetration and experience of violence, it's a lot higher now. Uh, so more people are aware of, of their rights, uh, potentially victims. More people are aware of, of that, uh, the fact that uh, perpetrating violence is, is a crime um, and it has very serious consequences, not just for the victim, but for other people around her. It has intergenerational impact. Um, so that's a positive thing. You, you can see more now in, in the society. There's more public outrage when there are cases of, for instance, extortion, which is, which is new um, in the country. Um, so I think that that's positive. Um, society as a whole is awakening. And with, along with the, with more advanced um, legislative framework and uh, increased capacity, there will be uh, more results in the work. And for the women who are victims, I think it's it's important for them to understand that there are both, both formal and informal uh, systems of support that exist and um, they have to use any possible uh, way to seek help and, and seek support. So that help-seeking behaviour should be nurtured in women and, and they need to go and seek help because no matter what, there are um, uh, channels um, of help that exist because it's it's more and more now uh, a more debated and more discussed and and. Um, it's more on the agenda now, this topic. So there are definitely ways where they can seek help. Okay, thank you. Dilfusa, you get the last word. <laughs> thank you so much. So what I would just add a few points. One is the all efforts of coalitions, I would call that, has to be supported and, and acknowledged because the coalition consists of, uh, as Jeanette mentioned, some of the government officials, high-level officials, senators, members of parliament and uh, government organizations, and also registered, unregistered NGOs, 
It can be interest groups, it can be activists, it can be just a simple citizen. So I think these kind of coalitions has to be priced and acknowledged. These efforts, I think, will make a change in bigger run. Uh, but when it, when it comes to the advice to women or victims of gender-based violence or domestic violence, I always say one thing, you have to collect your evidences. Unfortunately, we're in, in, a, in a situation where victims and, and people themselves have to be aware of what is going on. And one thing is to keep recording. It has to be recorded text messages, emails, voice messages, calls, videos, and etc. It's very, very important to record everything happening. I mean, if, if you feel that threat is coming up. The second thing is about complaining through a centralized system. For example, in Uzbekistan, it's vital to call a 102 to the police office in central office because in this way, victim will secure their protection from law enforcement agencies. And if you're recording the central apparatus, no one can recall your complaint, no one can cancel your complaint, and it will be reviewed in a serious way. So don't call your police officer. You just have to call central apparatus and then complain. And the third thing, whatever happens, for example, if you, if you make a complaint, if you talk with the mahala, if you talk with the police officer, all recordings, all protocols, all documents have to be provided. You have to have a copy with yourself, even if it's passing, I don't know, 10 years, five years, it will help you protect you in the further violations, whatever happening. So these, I think, three key advices that I give to my clients, I give to all uh, women, I give to all my, you know, speeches that this is very basic things, how you can protect yourself, how you can provide evidences, and how you can seek for justice in protection of your rights. Well, thank you very much. And, and thanks, thank you for this discussion. I mean, this is a tough discussion. Certainly the amount of time we had here wasn't anywhere near enough, but, but it's important to get this out here. I mean, silence is the worst thing that you can do about this, uh, that can happen with this. So uh, I appreciate you guys, you all taking the time to, to be on the program and talk, talk about this. Um, and like I said, we will, we will get you all back and talk about this issue again uh, in the very near future. Uh, but for now, we are out of time. So I want to say thank you to Sophia, Jeanette, and Delfuza for being on the program today. Uh, and a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolis podcast or Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.